please take your copy of the scriptures and turn to the little letter of Jude toward the very back of the Bible. It's the second to the last book right before the book of Revelation. And we'll look at this uh, tiny letter tucked in there toward the end of the Bible. Of the 66 books of the Bible, five of them are only one chapter long. I wonder if you can run through the list in your mind and name them all. Obadiah, Philemon, 2nd and 3rd John, and Jude Jude, uh, belongs to that uh, famous group. Although short in length, um, certainly very weighty and substantial in uh, content, Uh, this letter is written by Jesus' half-brother Jude, who is called Judas in the listing of Jesus' siblings in the Gospel accounts in Matthew 13 and Mark chapter 6. One of the fiercest unbelievers in his early days, even after growing up under the same roof with Jesus, and yet how marvelously, as as evidenced by this letter, uh, God's grace has reached into his life. And Jude's message to God's people is indeed seasoned with salt. And we'll look at the whole letter in one soup uh, this morning. Having finished the series on Romans last week, we're kind of in between the series. And I want to look at this uh, letter of Jude this morning. And Lord willing, next week uh, we will embark on a new series through the massive book of Ezekiel. And that is in response to the specific request from a couple of you in recent weeks. So do be in prayer for that study, that it will be a profitable and edifying exposition to you in your individual Christian life, but also our congregational uh, living together. Well, let's uh, pray before we hear God's word this morning. Let's look to our God and pray together. Gracious God and our Holy Father, we thank you and praise you that every word here in this page has been breathed out by you and given to the church for our salvation. Well, how we thank you that by your mercy, we have come to taste something of the goodness of the word of God spoken to us in the exposition of the scriptures in the past and how we have come to see the power of that word being at work in our own lives as we believe, and to see us changed into the likeness of Jesus so that by the grace of God, we are what we are, and we are increasingly conformed to the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Lord, we do pray that you would continue that work within us. So bless the study of this word in our lives, that we may live a more zealous life dedicated to your glory. I pray that you would establish us, we pray, and also strengthen us in our faith and make us increase in our love towards you uh, as your great son, the gospel of the Lord Jesus, uh, ministered in the power of the Spirit, uh, come afresh upon us uh, in the opening up of the scriptures. And this all we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll read the entire letter. Hear God's word. Jude, a servant of Christ Jesus and brother of James. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered up to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed 
who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was distributing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of the gain, sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, watch waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, authority, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forevermore. Amen.
There's a sense in which this wasn't the letter that Jude had originally wanted to write to the church as a servant of Jesus Christ. He makes it very clear in verse 3 how the desire of his soul was to write to the saints about our common salvation, the salvation that we share in Jesus. Jude was very keen, very eager to tell the believers about the glories of the gospel and to expound how great our salvation we have. And in fact, as we begin the first few verses, there is this spiritual atmosphere of joy and fellowship as he addresses them, this sheer sense of privilege in the gospel with which the letter opens. That Christians are those, as he describes in verse 1, who are called, I'm writing to you, who are beloved in God the Father and kept for, or perhaps by, Jesus Christ. What a marvelous description of how you should think of yourself as believers in Christ, that you are beloved in God the Father and actually being kept for someone else, kept for the Lord Jesus. And as when you are at an art museum and you stroll through various exhibits with a curator explaining the details of the paintings for your greater understanding and appreciation and enjoyment, and Jude wanted to explore all the glories of the cross and marvel together at the riches of God's salvation and unpack what it means for us to be loved by God and in God and saved for Jesus, it is as though Jews wanted to write to you about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the everlasting love of God the Father, and nothing would delight him more than to do that. But something else forced his hand that changed the direction of this letter, this compulsion, a divine necessity that has been laid upon him to issue an appeal to them instead. He says in verse 3, I appeal to you to contend for the faith once for all entrusted to the saints, to contend for the faith as though being engaged in a great wrestling match because the word there encapsulates the idea of struggling or striving with effort, toil, and even agony and pain. The verb literally says in the Greek, agonize. And we need to be on guard then to fight the good faith, fight of the faith, Judah is saying to the church. And that's Often the life of the church is not. Ideally, the saints should talk much about the things of the Lord, things pertaining to salvation. Those who fear the Lord, as Malachi chapter 3 says, speak with one another. With great eagerness, you should speak much of the glory of God in the gospel whenever you come together with the saints. The beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, boasting in all his sufficiency as the Savior, ideally, you want to see more of that, and you do delight to see that if you are true believers, because that is just like heaven. Our salvation and the grace of God in Jesus Christ is going to be the theme of our praise, but that's not often what ends up happening as you come to church. Our conversations with one another, our fellowship, just like Jude's letter, are often diverted away from the glory of our Savior and from our salvation and the excellency of the things spiritual and diverted away to another subject for whatever reason due to slowness of heart, dullness of spirit, or even deceitfulness of our own sin, reminding us that we are yet church militant and not church triumphant. We have not yet arrived. And so for that very reason, Jude here writes this letter that we have before us to contend for the faith 
once for all delivered for us. And he gives a specific reason for that pastoral compulsion. It's because certain people have crept in unnoticed into the body life of the church. The presence of false teachers and false brothers introducing false teaching and false living into the church. He sums up in one word throughout this letter the word ungodliness or ungodly people. Its introduction and progress are always going to be imperceptive. These people have crept in unnoticed. How true is that in your own experience, in your Christian walk, how easily it is for you also to be caught in a season of spiritual declension, little by little by little by little. Before you notice it, it has crept into your experience. And so you need to be aware of the leavening effect of ungodliness and contend for the faith that has been delivered to you. And so Jude spends the bulk of this letter setting forth the nature and character and destiny of ungodliness, providing ample and abundant examples of it by way of a warning and a reminder to us in a way that seems at first quite heavy and over the top. Until you realize that verses 4 through 16 in in this letter are by and large reproduced and repeated in 2 Peter chapter 2 also. The Holy Spirit, knowing our great need as God's people, is making sure that we need to be clear about something Jude is speaking here. It's so important that the Spirit has given this section twice in the scriptures that ungodliness will be manifested chiefly in two ways. Look down in verse 4. Whenever people are not walking with our Lord despite their outward standing in the church, they distort the grace of God into license or lawlessness or sensuality, and they also deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, when you bump shoulders with these people, they will never deny the idea of grace. They may make much of grace in their talk, but their walk, contrary to their talk, their walk will reveal where they stand, that they will walk contrary to grace. The very grace of God that is meant to save you from sin is going to be used as a cover-up to tolerate sin, to indulge in sin, and to seem to think that sin is okay. And these people will never deny Jesus outright, but they will, in fact, call him Lord. But by their lifestyle, they'll reject the lordship of Jesus over their lives and rebel against the implications of submitting to Jesus as master. As Jesus himself said, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. But Jesus will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. And so false teaching, unbelief, apostasy, it's never an intellectual difficulty. The problem at the end of the day is always going to be moral and spiritual. Whenever you see someone drifting away and their doctrinal commitment beginning to wane, the secret that the Bible tells us is that the problem is always moral. Something in their lives that they are not submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ that is bringing that person into the path of ungodliness. And so before you contend for the faith, the Bible says and urges you, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. And Jude here piles on example after example of those who have failed the test. 
Look down in verses 5 and 7. There's a triple reminder from what happened in the visible church and in the heavens above and in the world at large. Think of the church, what's inside it, the Israelites in the wilderness. They are all saved out of Egypt by Jesus, all partaking in the same spiritual food. And yet they were destroyed through unbelief when they indulged in two things that the Bible tells people of God to flee, idolatry and immorality. Or think of the heavenlies. Uh, The angels who once lived in the glorious presence of God rebelled against the authority of God and transgressed the boundaries, and now they are bound in chains, awaiting the judgment of gloom and eternal fire. And think of the world at large, represented by Sodom and Gomorrah, living in sexual sins, and sulfur and fire came down upon them unto destruction as an example to be upheld to the rest of the world. And yet... That's a minor note relatively compared to the judgment that will be for those who's known something of the power of the uh, kingdom of God in the exposition of Jesus' words and yet deliberately turn their backs against Jesus' lordship. And so Jude said later down in verse 14, Jesus will indeed come with his holy angels to judge all the ungodly of every bit of ungodliness and so certain is this judgment that it, that it's also mentioned even outside of the holy scriptures Jesus' half brother here quotes from the jewish tradition a couple of times the prophets of enoch and this rather strange episode about the archangel michael disputing with the devil over the body of moses you see in verse 9 and if you're perplexed about that reference don't be It's not given for your speculation, but rather for your edification. Because the archangel Michael is a biblical figure. In Revelation chapter 12, Michael leads the angels in heavenly warfare. And in the heavenly places, we see that reality unfolded before us to grasp. Michael and his angels defeating Satan, the dragon, and his angels, and throwing the devil down. And so that as a result, the fallen angels were out of heaven. In Daniel chapter 10, this same Michael, we find him engaged in spiritual conflict with the principalities that represent the kingdom of Persia, the kingdoms of this world. This same archangel Michael, this glorious and holy one who will sound the trumpet at the return of the Lord Jesus. Jude says this Michael didn't dare pronounce judgment against the devil when the devil brought accusations against Moses, God's servant. But Michael simply said, the Lord rebuke you. Because judgment belongs to the Lord. And just stop and think what's the significance of that reference. You get a glimpse of what happens in the heavenly realm here. Moses couldn't enter the promised land because of his failure to uphold the Lord as holy. He died before entering the land of Canaan, his body was buried in the land of Moab in a pagan land. And Satan, being a slanderer and accuser of the brothers, pouncing upon the opportunity, had a field day seeking to bring charges against Moses. He's a murderer in Egypt. He's failed the Lord as his servant. He struck the rock with a staff in anger. Therefore, he's disqualified. He will never inherit the promised land. There is something of this spiritual dimension that Jude is wanting us to know that the angel 
disputing with Michael over the body of Moses. And Michael came to Moses' defense and said, the Lord rebuke you. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. One day, Moses' dead body will not lie forever in the dust, but will be raised to inherit the glorious kingdom promised. And here the archangel is contending with Satan who delights to bring accusations and doubts. Oh, what a comfort it is for you, believers, brothers and sisters, that it's not an angel who comes to your defense. It's a risen Lord Jesus Christ who takes up your cause and intercedes for you, as Paul says in Romans 8, who is to bring any charge against the elect. Whenever you are on the receiving end of the attacks of the evil one, it is then Jesus Christ who takes up your cause. It is Christ who died for you, Christ who rose, and indeed more than that, who is at God's right hand interceding for you. Is Jesus indeed your shield and your righteousness against all these spiritual attacks in the spiritual warfare that you live? There's no more any condemnation for you, those who are in Jesus Christ. He's a refuge against all the wrath of God, against all sin and ungodliness that will be poured out one day when Jesus Christ returns with his holy angels and the archangel Michael did that over the body of Moses because the judgment belongs to the Lord. It's a comforting reminder to you as well that your body as a redeemed child does not lie under the dominion of Satan as it were, but it belongs to Jesus. Whether you live or die, you belong to the Lord. Even after death, your body still united to Jesus Christ rests in the grave until the resurrection, as our catechism says. The evil one has absolutely no power over you. That's the confidence that the people of God lives with. But if you deny the lordship of Jesus over your life, if you distort the grace of God into lawlessness, you won't have the comfort and assurance of salvation. You end up, as described in the passage, relying on your own dreams. You become a blasphemous affront to the holy angels because you have set yourself against Christ, whom the angels worship. As Jude says, you even become a being in defilement, living without understanding, and the end of all these things is condemnation, fearful expectation of judgment. And to clinch his argument, Jude turns not to extra-biblical tradition, but to the Old Testament scriptures. Just look at the Old Testament, verse 11. The envy, hate-filled Cain, the prophet-seeking, money-loving Balaam, the authority-defying Korah, these individuals in the Old Testament all stand as examples of those who have turned away from the Lord. And the ungodly will always be like that. And here a Jew turns from Scripture to nature, and the four metaphors he mentions in verses 12 through 13, they are like waterless clouds, only blown away by winds. If you think about clouds in the sky, waterless, it's absolutely useless. They shower not rain down on earth, waterless. 
they only block out the sunlight. But they are also like fruitless trees, twice dead and uprooted. No fruit to be found in them because they are not rooted in the soil of salvation. They are wild waves of the sea, continually churning out of the foam of their own shame, Jude says. Churning out things like grumbling, malcontent, and boasting because they think that they deserve better. And finally, they are wandering stars, just full of burning gas while they exist, without light and without direction. Well, these are very heavy stuff that Jude sets before us. Although an absolutely sober-minded description of the ungodly and ungodliness that are found in the church, these are some pretty heavy descriptions nonetheless he sets before us. And the uh, conclusion he draws is that they are godless, they are ungodly because they are ultimately devoid of the spirit and full of the world. They are godless because they are spiritless. If they do not have the spirit of Christ, indeed they do not belong to him. So Jude spares no word because he's adamant that in the lives of those who claim the faith, nothing would demean or dis- displace the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and their master. But here's the real message that Jude wants to write. Notice how Jude addresses the saints, as opposed to the ungodly, after saying these people, these people, these people, these people. Jude picks up the thread he began the letter with in verse 17 and says, but you, beloved, you, beloved, you can take all this in because you have sunk your teeth deep into the apostolic teaching. None of what I've written to you is a surprise to you because you remember the scriptures that told you all this, how in the last days there will be scoffers, scoffers who pour scorn and show contempt for the things of God and scoff chiefly at his word, how in the last days the love of many will grow cold, and how in the last days many, having itching ears, will not endure sound teaching, but they will turn away from that to suit their own passions. You, beloved, remember what the scriptures have told you, but you, beloved, Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God. And that's the main burden that lies upon Jude's heart as he thinks of the saints. Beloved, keep yourselves as ones loved by God in the love of God. And that's the exhortation to you this morning as well. Because this comes to you not in the singular. This isn't some quiet time exhortation you individually take up chiefly. But you plural together as the saints of the Lord. Keep yourselves in the love of God. And the million dollar question is how exactly do you do that in your Christian living? What does it mean for you to keep yourself together with all the saints in the love of God. Even as in Romans chapter 8, the gospel declares that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. How then do you keep yourself in those everlasting cords of love which nothing can sever? And Jude here uh, gives two main activities that attend every beloved child of God. Look down in verse 20. Jude says, building yourself up in the most holy faith and praying 
in the spirit, building yourself in the sound doctrine as you continually nourish yourself upon God's word and upon sound teaching, and as you keep on praying ceaselessly in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, you live and dwell in the love of God the Father. You abide in his love, as Jesus says in John chapter 15, if you keep his commandments and the way you are led to the pathway of obedience is that you constantly immerse yourself in the gospel as you constantly pray in fellowship with the Heavenly Father in the name of the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit, as you do so through word and spirit in prayer and in the scriptures, you will learn to keep yourself in the love of God. This is a marvelous, quite simple, there's nothing complex or complicated here for the saints. It's simply a diligent use of the means of grace that Jude is commanding to you. The way you guard yourself against the encroachment of the love of the world, the love of money, the love of pleasure, the love of self, the love of sin, overtaking your heart quite imperceptibly. The way you guard yourself against the encroachment of the leavening effect of ungodliness into your thinking, choosing, and living is by feeding daily upon the truth of Jesus and by praying in the Holy Spirit. Paul mentions a reality in Ephesians chapter 6 when he speaks of the reality of spiritual warfare. He concludes that section in Ephesians chapter 6 by saying, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication and unto that end, always keeping alert with all perseverance. And when you live like that, when you live sober-mindedly with spiritual awakeness, you will ensure, you will make sure that you are always abiding in the great love of God poured out for you in the gospel. Spending time with God who has poured out his love and you'll go on discovering more and more and more that it's actually not you who are keeping yourself, but it is he who is keeping you. And so having set forth that main burden to the saints to keep yourself in the love of God, Jude then concludes this letter with where every writing should end with a doxology. And now to him who is able, at the end of the day, you don't do that by your own resources or by your strength. You're weak. You're susceptible to false teaching. Deceitfulness of sin in your heart is very real. Keep looking up, knowing that he is keeping you by and for our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's see how marvelously Jude comes full circle here. I wanted to write to you about our common salvation and the riches of God's love. Let me now finish by writing indeed about our salvation and ascribing glory, majesty, dominion, and authority to the only God, our sovereign Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, ascribing glory to the God, our Savior. And Jude then puts us where we should always keep our eyes on, on the glorious power and sufficiency of our God as Savior. If you can turn your direction in your own mind to the Old Testament temple that Solomon built, there are two major pillars standing at the entrance of the temple, and you know how they were specifically named 
one of those Bible trivia questions, perhaps some of you know the answer. One pillar named Boaz, the other pillar named uh, Jachin. Boaz meaning strength and Jachin meaning he will establish. It's as though in the New Covenant temple, the two pillars are indeed speaking of the God's almighty power to save, that he is your strength and he will establish and keep. So he is able to keep you, uh, Jude says. And notice how he concludes with these two great saving realities that are true of you, beloved. He is able to keep you from falling, from stumbling, and he is able to present you blameless or faultless. Two time markers there. He is able to keep you from falling all the way to the end, until the end of your days. And he is able to present you at the end of the days, faultless, before the presence of his glory, with exceeding joy. That sums up God's work of salvation, his work of grace towards you, perseverance of the saints, all the way until the end. He who made heaven and earth, your heavenly Father, is your keeper. He will not let your foot slip. He knows all your lying down and rising up. He knows all your thoughts. And Jude says he is able indeed to keep you. And he's also able to present you. The word he uses there, blameless or faultless, is used of Jesus himself, the lamb without blemish. And just like the Lord Jesus, your Savior, you will one day present it faultless. Faultless in knowledge, faultless in holiness, faultless in righteousness. Now you know only in part. You see through the glass darkly. You know in part, but you will be faultless in your knowledge as you see the Lord Jesus face to face. You'll be faultless in your holiness. No more defect in your character. Your spirit will be made perfect. No pride, no selfishness, no waywardness, no temptation whatsoever laying hold of your being, and you'll be faultless in righteousness as you are robed with the perfect righteousness of your Redeemer. You'll be clothed with his own fine linen, and he will present you faultless before his glorious presence. So that's how uh, Jude ends this little letter from Jesus' brother. Beloved, keep yourself in the love of God, and you do so as you constantly build yourself. And you won't be able to build yourself unless that foundation for that building is the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be able to keep yourself in God's love as you draw near to him constantly in prayer. And as you do so, here is the last part. Wait for the mercy of Jesus, which brings to eternal life. As you wait for the day of glory, as you deeply discover the richness of the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is so full of gentleness and compassion, the fierce Lord Jesus who will judge this entire world, may that mercy then be so assimilated into your own experience that let that mercy be also how you relate to people, to seek to win those who are doubting, to those who are defiled in sin, to those who are caught in the judgment fire. Mercy mixed with fear, show mercy to people headed in the way of ungodliness.
So if anything has been done for you, brothers and sisters, uh, this is where you end. Jude says, give him the glory. Give praise to no other but God, your Savior. Put no confidence in no other but God who is able. Psalm 40 says, let those who love the salvation of the Lord say forevermore that God is great. And look how Jude ends this letter. May glory be to the Lord before all time, now and forever. Amen. There's an exclamation point, almost like a congregational amen that the letter ends with. And the question is, does your soul truly agree with and more than that submit to his teaching? Just three brief reminders to you as we finish because you are destined to be presented before the presence of his, gl- his before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy then let your current experience reflect that brothers whenever you come to worship as with the psalmist let us enter his gates with thanksgiving and joy let us enter his presence with singing you are being kept for Jesus there's exceeding joy in his presence let us enter and glorify our God with great joy. Then secondly, notice how Jude's distinction here holds true in life as well, that the difference, ultimate dividing line between the ungodly and the saints, between the worldly and the beloved, is going to be the note of doxology. You will spend the whole of your life glorifying God your Savior. And if that note is true to you, then let me mention the concluding final third exhortation to you. Then as with Jude, delight to talk to others, share with others, tell others about this common salvation, the great salvation that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. May that be the spiritual exhortation and challenge to all of you, thinking back to the days when you delighted in spiritual conversation, in spiritual fellowship. May indeed we discuss much the things of the glory of our Savior. Let us pray together.